Over the last few weeks, we have been uh, looking at one of the key warning passages in the book of Hebrews, and completely unexpectedly uh, for me, I get the most good feedback about this uh, text, and I think that shows something. It demonstrates that these passages in Hebrews, uh, at the end of Hebrews 5 and the beginning of Hebrews 6, cause a lot of Christians some fears. The original audience here were warned at the end of chapter 5 that they had become dull of hearing, that they would seemingly stopped caring much about doctrinal truth, and as a result of that, they'd become spiritually immature. All the great teaching about Jesus being a great high priest who brings us to God was put on hold for this warning. And then at the start of chapter 6, they were told that they need to go on to maturity and eat solid food, not just milk. Milk is for babies, solid food is for the mature. And then in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8, we have that warning that Martin Lloyd-Jones said was perhaps the passage that caused the greatest amount of distress in the Bible for Christian souls. Not that it is the most difficult passage to understand, but that it is used by Satan to cause Christians to doubt. And we saw that this warning in chapter four, uh, chapter 6, verses 4 to 8, was about the danger of apostasy, which means to fall away uh, from Christ and the Christian faith. And I said that in the illustration in verses 7 and 8, right? because we're going to start in verse 9 now, and the illustration in verse 7 and 8 really helps us understand what this passage is all about. Apostasy is not a Christian losing their salvation, but someone who appeared to be a Christian walking away from the faith. And the illustration helps us see that because this illustration of a field is not about a field that had a good land and a field that had a good harvest and then it lost its fruitful harvest and then yields thorns and thistles and incurs the judgment of God. No. In this illustration, there are two lands that receive the same uh, reign of the Word of God and the Gospel, and yet one produces a fruitful harvest, and that's a metaphor for a Christian, and one produces thorns and thistles, and that's talking about a person that apostatizes from the church. And this ties up incredibly well with Jesus' parable about the sower, which comes in Mark chapter 4. The one that apostatizes is the first three soils in the parable of the sower, and the one that becomes a fruitful Christian is the last soil in Mark chapter 4. And so this week we come to the transition out of the warning passages, and we'll see that the point of these warnings were not to discourage, but to warn and then encourage 
these Christians. I thought a lot about how to handle uh, this text. There's so many ways we could go. We could talk about the role of works and assurance. We could talk about sanctification in the Christian life. We could talk talk about all number of things. But I'm going to keep it quite general because I want us to see the point. I want us to see the point of the warning passage and the exactly what is being said to these specific people. Because if we misunderstand the warning passages, as so many do, and that causes us, causes us grief, I think it's good to see what he actually meant by the warning passages and why he shared it with them. And now he's going to transition out of it. He's going to give some more explanation. Right? I want us to see all of that. I want us to really see and feel the context of this text. So, the writer of Hebrews shares his judgment on these Christians, and his judgment is that they have a genuine faith, and he encourages them, believing that they will continue preserving to the, pers- persevering to the end of the hope of the Christian life. Right? His judgment is that they have a genuine faith, and he is confident and encourages them that they will continue persevering to the end in the hope of the Christian faith. There are lots and lots of lessons here for us. Just grab them out of the air. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. Let's read uh, together. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust those to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, what's happening there? In verse 9, the writer shares his judgment of the Hebrew Christians. In verse 10, he gives a reason for his judgment. And then in verses 11 and 12, he gives them some application which is an encouragement to faith and perseverance. Okay? So his judgment of the Hebrews. He says, I want you to notice something. He says, though we speak in this way. What's that talking about? That's talking about those warning passages. Though we speak in this way to you. He's saying, I don't want to make your focus on the preceding words. I don't want you to make your focus on those warnings. The warning about apostasy was given to them, but he did not write it about them. And that's so important. If we're going to just take this passage out of its context, Okay, and then in 2018, get scared. Oh my gosh, if I apostatize, if I abandon the faith. It's not the point. Now, as one commentator says, this doesn't mean that the warning is, after all, unnecessary or unrealistic. These people are, these people are told that they have been dull of hearing. 
They're spiritually stagnant. They demonstrate a level of apathy towards doctrine and knowing Christ in a deeper way. They found themselves unable to eat solid food. The stagnant situation in which they find themselves, in which they're not really growing or maturing in any way, is not good. It's unhealthy. Maybe you can identify. And so it makes sense to warn them that apostasy is a reality for some that remain in that state. That if you just quit caring entirely, well, maybe you are showing yourself eventually to have not been a true Christian at all and to fall away from Christ. There's a slight little bit of application here, and I've, I've heard it a lot growing up, and I think it's, this is a rebuke on the idea that you can say, I don't care about doctrine, I just love people and love God. I'm just about loving God and loving people, I don't care about doctrine. This is a rebuke on that. Because he's saying, I'm trying to tell you what a great high priest Jesus is and you can't understand it because you don't care. How can you love God without doctrine? How can you love someone that you don't know? I use this all the time. If I got my wife a manual on how to fix a car and gave it to her for Christmas... I would be showing an extraordinary naivety and lack of knowledge about my wife. The writer says, we, verse 9, he says, he says, multiple people here with him. That's the first time we actually understand this. He says, we, right? Multiple people, we're not sure if this is Paul or Barnabas or Apollos who's writing this letter. He says, multiple people with him have reason for optimism regarding this group of people. There's a level of confidence that they're able to get across that these people have actually received the gospel of grace and that God is at work in their lives. And this all tells us one big thing that warnings are not meant to terrify or discourage sincere believers in Christ. If you remember one thing from this message, remember that. Remember one thing from Hebrews chapter 6, remember that. Warnings are not meant to terrify or discourage sincere Christians. Look what he calls them. He says, in your case, beloved he calls a group of people that have collectively been apathetic, dull of hearing, and considering going back to Old Covenant Judaism. And he tells them, he calls them, you're beloved. You, I love you. You're loved by God. You're loved by us. You're loved by your leaders. It's affectionate. And then he says, we feel certain of better things. And those things are things that belong to salvation. 
This is a very simple way of saying to them, we feel certain that you guys are going to continue to bear fruit relating to salvation rather than go on into apostasy. We expect that this warning is not going to be true about you. So there's a real confidence that salvation has taken place. And I I like the fact that Hebrews 13, 17, it says this, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And there's just, from my part, I want to say this. There's a very real sense in which someone faithfully is part of a church. They faithfully seek to follow Christ and they they seek to, with whatever they have, love people around them. It's a means of giving church leaders joy. And it's a means by which they can say, oh, I'm so thankful. Some of you, some of you have seen over the years have have had this kind of mindset of just worrying as to whether your faith is real, worrying that you're not as holy as you wish you were, worrying that you're not growing. And yet people around you, whether church leaders or not, are able to say, no, you're actually growing. We see progress that you do not see. That's a great thing. There's a level of joy that people can have in watching you grow and mature in the faith. And I think sometimes these kind of things need to be said like here in Hebrews 6 because we don't realize and we don't see what God's been doing in our life over the past. I'm sure every one of you knows someone, maybe this is you yourself, someone who just thinks, oh, I'm not going anywhere in my Christian faith. And we can say, wow, you're so much better off than you were last year or five years ago. Let me put out another application. If you see people growing in grace, growing in the gospel, growing in humility, growing in love, encourage them in that. Tell them. It's so good to see what God is doing in your life. If I give you the Lord's Supper on a Sunday, that's a good sign. (laughs) That's a good sign, even if I don't know you that well. It's a good, good, good sign. Why is this judgment made? Why is this judgment made that these people are not likely to go off into apostasy? Well, verse 10, it tells us, the reason for this judgment is the fruit of their faith. I am going to read this again. It says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. So these people, though they're dull of hearing, though they're not caring that much about doctrine, they're still actually trying to love other Christians. All right? So one good thing is happening. There's an evident fruit of faith. 
The reason for this confidence is that these people have not abandoned the church, they have not abandoned other Christians, but they're seeking to serve them. They're seeking to love them. They're seeking to be around them. The biggest way to discourage other Christians, perhaps, that regularly takes place, is to just disappear. Is to just disappear and not be heard from and not tell anyone where you're going and cut other Christians out of your life. I know sometimes there are good reasons for that to happen, but just ask for help. These people here, they told they had not abandoned the, the believers, but they were seeking their good. Apostasy, one of the key signs in apostasy is just abandoning the church entirely. First John 2.19, it says, They went out from us because they were not of us. Well, that's not true of these people. They were serving the saints. And that word, saint, means set apart one. Right? Set apart one. They were serving the other set apart ones. When you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a saint. You are set apart by God in Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is. You are people that are made holy and set apart from the world flesh, the devil, and saints are called to live in a different way. This should be one of those verses that we all know so well, right? John 13, 34, it says this, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people shall know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Saints do certain things. Loving each other is one of them. And we're told there's a reason for this. It is to be done for the sake of God's name. There in verse 10. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Living faith in Christ, it works. And I think that's an important thing. The love of God is a creating love. Right? It doesn't work this way. This text gets misapplied a lot. You'll see, you'll see why. It doesn't work in such a way that we say, Oh, I better love other people so I can become a saint. If I love other people really well, then I can become a saint. It doesn't work like that. It says, I am a saint. Now I live this way. Big difference. And it's implicit all throughout this text. That love for other Christians shows that better things that belong to salvation are present amongst these people. And I will say, messed up as they appear. As the love of God changes us, we begin to love what God loves, which is his children. First John 3, verse 10, it says, This is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's a diagnostic tool. Christians aren't meant to hate one another. They're supposed to reconcile. They're supposed to seek forgiveness. And all of this is not the cause of justification, but this is sanctification. Right? That we being dead in our trespasses and sins, because we naturally hate our neighbors, we hate Christians, we hate those around us, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life on our behalf, died for our sins to reconcile us to God. And now having come to God, having been shown such great love, we are now called to walk in a specific way as we are conformed to the image of Christ, as Paul says in Romans 8. And what this means is that love and obedience to God and loving others are fruit, not the root of salvation. The love of God is the root of salvation in Christ. Loving others is the fruit of salvation. And because it is done in God's name, we can say, we can ask ourselves, why ought we to show love to difficult people? How can we show love to people that we don't naturally incline towards? We're told here, for the sake of God's name. If you're a Christian, you're someone who has sinned in an enormous way against God, and He has shown you love and grace, you being dead in trespasses and sins. He has washed you clean through His Son. He has set you apart as a saint, and now He calls you to love and obey Him. And with that said, with that context taken up, we need to see something else. Hebrews gives us a whole number of phrases and verses that people get very confused about and people misapply. And would you know it, there's another one here, right in verse 10. Look what it says. For God is not unjust to overlook your work. If you're a Catholic apologist in the 1600s, you love this verse. You love this verse. Martin Luther is wrong. God is not unjust to overlook our works. You're not justified by faith. You're justified by works. It's right there in the text. Firstly, the context of the book of Hebrews destroys this whole thing where we're up to here in verse 6. Calvin says on this text, he says, the author is clearly not discussing here the cause of our salvation, and therefore no conclusion should be drawn from this passage about the merits of works. He just says this is not talking about earning your salvation in any way. It's not talking about merit. Right? This is discussing work as a fruit of salvation. The author is confident that they're not going to apostatize because there's fruit. 
things that belong to salvation, we see in verse 9. Reasons why he's confident that these people are genuine recipients of God's grace. So what then does it mean? What then does it mean God is not unjust to overlook our works? Very simply, this should encourage you. It should encourage me too. God doesn't overlook your works. God doesn't overlook even the small things that you do. Do you know, do you appreciate that God delights in the small acts of obedience and love that Christians perform? The smallest act of obedience, giving someone a glass of water, God delights in that. Praying for someone, whatever it is, saying no to temptation, God delights in all those ordinary small acts that we do multiple times a day. I'm not going to read it, but in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus discusses John the Baptist and what made John the Baptist so great. And Jesus shows this so well in that text, this truth about God not overlooking what we do. And I want to read a paragraph by J.C. Ryle because I think it so wonderfully encourages this point about God not overlooking the small things that we do. J.C. Ryle says this, Do we know what it is to work for Christ? Have we ever felt cast down and dispirited as if we were doing no good and no one cared for us? Are we ever tempted to feel when laid aside by sickness or withdrawn by providence? I have labored in vain and spent my strength for nothing. Let us meet such thoughts by the recollection of this passage in Matthew 11. Let us remember there is one who daily records all we do for him and sees more beauty in his servant's work than his servants do themselves. The same tongue which bore testimony to John in prison will bear testimony to all his people at the last day. He will say, Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then shall his faithful witnesses discover, to their wonder and surprise, that there was never a word spoken on their master's behalf which does not receive a reward. End quote. The J.C. Ryle on Matthew 11. God delights far more in the things that you do then you delight in them yourself. Sanctification and the presence of fruit give hope that God is at work in the lives of Christians. And this is very important. The great reason that we can be sure that we will not apostatize in Christ is because our confidence should be on the fact that we continue in the faith ultimately because of God's faithfulness. Not ours. Humans are frail and fallible. God is not, and he finishes 
what he starts, which is why Paul says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you shall finish it. And that's what verses 13 to 20 say after this in chapter 6. It's not ultimately about you and the things that you do. Lastly, there's some application in verse 11 and 12. And we'll give this, go through this quickly. There's an encouragement to faith and perseverance. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is a call to pursue sanctification. This is a call to keep going. This is a call to keep seeking to obey God and love others and keep doing it. And he says, all of you, every single one of you, do this. There's a little line there, and I don't bring this up a lot. It says to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And we must say this. The Christian's assurance of salvation is ultimately based upon what Jesus Christ has done on their behalf. And I make a lot about that, and I say it all the time. But what this is saying is, is that when... We are not being obedient to God when we're not loving Him, when we're not loving others well. It doesn't make us unsaved, but it will very likely affect our assurance. And this is why David, when he sinned against Bathsheba, did lack assurance for a season until he repented of his sins, until he came clean, until he put himself bare before God and asked to be washed white as snow, as happened in Psalm 51. Confession and repentance. He's saying, don't be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Pursue Christian life and obedience in Christ. There's a negative application and a positive. Don't be sluggish. Some of you might know the word slothful, right? Those beautiful little fairy creatures, right? Sloth. See, don't be like that. They move slowly. Don't be sluggish. Don't be slothful. When we're slothful, we give in to temptation easily. We have apathy towards truth. We have apathy towards prayer. We have apathy towards the Bible. We have apathy towards corporate worship. We have apathy towards fellowship with other Christians. We neglect to do the things that God's called us to do. He says, don't be like that. And so just in case you're confused here, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to merit. So, so important. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's not opposed to trying. It's opposed to merit, which is seeking to earn God's favor. Having received God's favor, work, obey, live. Secondly, Positively, it says, be 
patient and have faith, imitating those who inherit the promises. This is picturing that wonderful chapter that's coming up in Hebrews 11, that roll call of faith, that great cloud of witnesses. He says, by faith and patience, imitate those people. Imitate them and their faith towards God, trusting in what they don't see, and their patience in enduring much. He says, imitate them. And he uses immediately after the example of Abraham. Christians need endurance and perseverance. And that's an important thing for us to remember. The gospel is done. The good news of what Jesus Christ has accomplished happened in history 2,000 years ago. But the full enjoyment of all the benefits won 2,000 years ago is not yet here. John Owen says, Patience is necessary with respect to our waiting for the accomplishment of many great promises concerning the kingdom of Christ and the interest of the gospel in this world. The kingdom of God, which is one in Christ, the rule of Christ, is not here in its fullness. It comes at Christ's return. And therefore, there is a need for patience. We have not yet in its fullness received the heavenly city that we wait for, that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. So don't be sluggish, slothful, and have faith and patience imitating those like Abraham and others. You can read in Hebrews 11, trusted God even when they did not see what they were waiting for. All right, as a run into the supper, I want us to read verses 13 to 20, so we can see the full context of this passage. Hebrews 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, 